Um, thanks for for having me. Uh, I I grew up in uh, grew up in New York, but uh, have been in California for twenty years, and so um, yeah, it's interesting to be back. I sort of know myself as like a thirteen-year-old <laughs> in Manhattan, and that's if any of those mind states are apparent. You, <laughs> ask your understanding uh i'm i'm happy to be with you um i asked uh asked gary who i knew from uh from spirit rock uh you know what to what to talk about and he said well new york is kind of intense so uh something relevant to that yeah and uh, just got into to the city a couple hours ago and walking around and yeah Gary's right you know like um, it is intense and it's uh, the heart longs for some kind of uh, refuge and uh, to, even though this is just a couple hours together it um, we collectively through our practice and the sincerity of our of our intention um, create some sense of, of refuge together. That's very much co-created. Um, and I'm happy to be, uh, be in the field with you in that. So uh, for the uh, format, we'll, we'll sit, I'll guide, guide a sit, and then we'll uh, take, take a few minutes to uh, say hello to each other or get some tea or and uh, come back for for a, a talk and some discussion. Um, yeah, so find a uh, find a posture that feels sustainable and balances relaxation. Thank you. Nice to sit with you. You know, in meditation, like one of the ways of characterizing it, we become a little vague or soft at the edges, yeah? And um, there's nothing quite like the gaze of another and the apparent necessity of social interaction to re-coagulate the sense of self, yeah? That's uh, not a way of putting down talking, <laughs> yeah? But just like um, really, you know, pay attention to how the social self constellates and you know, we're, we're in a kind of, you know, we're in a Dharma center, like we have full permission to be like a little socially awkward, you know? Like we don't have to put on our, you know, like, it's very easy to snap back into like the competent social role of, well, hello, I'm Matthew Brentsilver, you know? It's like, one of my teachers said, um, said like he was just commenting on um you know how much we long to actually connect in a relaxed way where we can be vague you know our own being it can be less defined and um you know and that that longing just to to meet each other in that heart space that uh is uncontrived and he he said that the the way in which we're we sort of like take on the personality with such diligence, you know, it, he, he described the interactions that come out of that as, as being, uh, he used the word eerie. Yeah. Which maybe not how it feels to you always, you know, it's like, 
but there is a way in which um, we want to, um, yeah, we want to find ways of, uh, of um, yeah, connecting heart to heart. And that, that entails a certain measure of relaxation and social risk and the moment, letting the momentum of um, <coughs> practice follow you into the break. Yeah. So that's all like a real weird pep talk for uh, <laughs> enjoy your break and uh, each other and get bathrooms back there and tea and uh, I'll ring the bell in, in maybe 10 minutes. We'll come back for a talk. And uh, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to uh, talk to anybody. So, from one sense, we can say that, um, you know, our experience is our life, you know that um, what what matters what matters to us most is is the conscious experience moment by moment and in a way you know in some sense that's the only life we can ever know is is that uh, contacting experience and what that means in a sense is that how deeply we're actually contacting it is determines how rich our life feels. You know? And earlier today, as I was, I was just like um, kind of in some multitasking, and the attention just felt thin and kind of fragmented. And life also feels thin in that you know, in those moments. It's like we're kind of alive and kind of not. And this, this, this way in which we train ourselves to actually gather the mind uh, means that, that the experience of being human gets richer. Yeah. It's one of the aspects of this, uh, this training in samadhi concentration, gathering of the mind, that's the, the topic for, for the evening. And so, yes, yeah, our little feedback. Uh, uh, we usually, um, yeah, test one, two, one, two, okay. Thanks, thanks, Amit. Um, you know, when we start spiritual practice, maybe we have this sense of of enlightenment as that which will solve our problems. Yeah, that's kind of the even if it's not super conscious, there's the little bit of a sense of like, here I am, I got problems. <laughs> like that's sort of the first insight of insight meditation is like. <laughs> I kind of got problems here. That was definitely the first one for me. Like, and I thought I was okay. I, um, and, and so there's this sense of like, okay, uh, um, there's going to be something out there, some experience shift in the heart, and that's actually going to resolve the problems. And um, in, in an important way, it's... It, as far as I can tell, it's actually the reverse, yeah? That, that it, enlightenment arises when we have no problems. Yeah. But what could that possibly mean, to have no problems, given the complexity of being human, the sensitivity of our nervous system, the first noble truth, the indivisibility of life, and complication, stress, yeah. And what I might say is that um, to have no problems is not to suspend the first noble truth that there is suffering or something like this, 
but uh, for there no longer to be any friction with experience, to actually experience uh, the flow of, of feeling, of sensation, of sight, without any friction generated. And this is the aspect of, of equanimity, whereby uh, we, as, as I alluded to in the sit, we fully make peace with the imperfection of the human condition. And so the development of this, this unified mind, this malleable kind of um, pliable mind, this sometimes called, translated as concentration, samadhi, but it, it, it's more like the unification of the mind. This is, this is actually the fruit of letting go. The fruit of letting go. So I'll um, unfold and, and as we go on. So, to say that samadhi is the fruit of letting go, it's the way we make peace with the human condition, we can ask like, okay, what exactly are we making peace with? And in an important sense, we're making peace with restlessness. This is uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi it says, um, uh, to understand the predicament of anxiety, we need only sit down quietly, draw our attention inward, and watch our thoughts as they tumble by. Our fears and concerns not need not assume vast proportions, but beneath the melody of constantly changing thoughts, punctuating them like the thumping of the bass in a jazz quintet is the persistent throb of worry and care, the second rhythm of the heart. We know that sense of like the, the way in which we can live always leaning forward, always in a sense hungry for more stimulation, hungry for something, making this moment a kind of um, a promise for the kind of investment we make for some future when we'll finally be able to settle. And one of the insights in our practice is that moment doesn't come unless we make it now, yeah? So, some of the, um, this kind of, the restlessness, the sense of tumbling forward is a function, maybe we say, of modernity, and some of it is, predates that, you know, is like woven into our evolutionary history. So, just in terms of this particular moment, this technological moment in time, um, it, it's important to acknowledge that we're, you know, we're always practicing something. Yeah? Like we think of, okay, there's meditation practice and then there's the rest of my life. But in an important way, we're always practicing something. And the question is, what are we practicing? And uh, the truth is, a lot of times, what we're practicing is a frenzied fragmentation of the attention. Yeah? Um, and we have, in a sense, acclimatized to a fairly dizzying level of technological obsession, yeah? And this is not me getting on my, like, anti-technology soapbox. This is just, like, something that w I think we, we've sort of have not fully accounted for the ways in which our relationship with technology actually has 
or at least can have a deeply fragmenting effect, yeah? And this is the kind of design whereby the stock valuation of technology companies is highly correlated with the time we spend on screens, yeah? Like that that's, that those two things are correlated, yeah? Creates this very perverse incentive structure to design for peak compulsivity, right? And they're so good at it, right? I mean, me and my little mindfulness practice versus a thousand engineers, <laughs> I'm gonna lose, you know? And um, we, we really actually have to take, take stock of this, yeah? And, uh, and to, to see, honestly, what it's the effects, yeah? And, um, you know, I, I, and I, I yeah, it's, it's always interesting. Like, I'm not, I don't teach a lot in Silicon Valley, but some, yeah? We're like the kind of epicenter. And all the engineers in the meditation community, they, they nod to this too. Like, so, yeah, right? Um, it's, it's just very, in a sense, risky for any time I have even the wispiest sense of boredom or loneliness or something that I can literally Google the next thought that careens into my mind. That's not a good setup for me. Yeah? And... And so there are ways in which, uh, yeah, of course, technology is like fantastic. And, I, you know, when I got to L.A., I first moved to L.A. from New York and um, we had Thomas Guides. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was like a 400 page map that you would just kind of lug around and then do your best to find where you were going, you know, and uh, that that's not good. <laughs> yeah, let's not move backwards to that. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, we, we do want to really actually look what, what, what are we practicing with this? Yeah. And, um, and there are, you know, there are people who are asking the question, how do we actually essentially design in an ethical way that that maximizes what we want and rather than exploits our impulsivity yeah and so this is a bigger question but the the pull of that is big you know is is prominent enough that i feel like it's sort of my responsibility in any talk about this topic of samadhi of this of the gathered mind we have to acknowledge this this piece, yeah. So that's maybe the the kind of one of the features of of modernity that impacts this quality of gatheredness or fragmentation. But then some of this just pre is is evolu it's in our evolutionary biology, yeah. And we can appreciate that as as animals the, who like with a kind of fundamental drive towards self-preservation uh, that makes life complicated to want you know it's so innocent to want to keep living it's like the most innocent blameless wish there is But picking it up actually carries a, a great deal of burden on the heart, yeah? To have to be tending to threat and opportunity at every moment, yeah? And it's not to say that we, we let go of the wish 
to continue our lives or something like that. But we do want to see the way in which we, that, that, that burden to keep ourselves safe at all times builds in a certain kind of frenzy yeah of the this kind of con this vigilant monitoring this way in which the attention is always getting fragmented as we're checking out the landscape of threats opportunities the labyrinth of pleasure and pain of risk and safety and so um some of this this tendency towards this kind of fragmented mind it's it's woven into our biology uh, the um the onion you know the onion yeah satirical paper that uh is more on point than most media, you know? Um, so this is, this is one of their stories. They, um, they said, um, new study finds solving every single personal problem reduces anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Explaining that participants left the clinical trial feeling calmer and more positive, a study published Monday by psychologists at the University of Washington has determined that people can significantly reduce their anxiety by solving every single one of their personal problems. <laughs> Quote, our findings suggest that resolving all of the major issues plaguing one's life, as well as the minor ones, is correlated with a decrease in the body's cortisol levels, <laughs> lower stress, and increase in reported life satisfaction, said the report's lead author, Dr. Alan Monroe. She added that getting oneself out of debt ironing out any interpersonal conflicts at one's workplace, <laughs> patching up all disagreements with one's spouse and family members, finding a good and affordable nearby restaurant option <laughs> for when one's friend is in town visiting, and taking care of several hundred other lingering concerns in one's life was found to appreciably lessen feelings of worry and tension. <laughs> and then they like, go in for the kill because they uh they said uh if you do that if you resolve all all problems you will achieve a 12 percent reduction in anxiety <laughs> <laughs> but it um it feels like that it feels like if we're not solving problems moment by moment when we sit here it feels like almost like a duty to ourselves to be solving problems. Yeah, you can see maybe the movements of the mind. It's not, it's not casual, it's actually chewing on things. It's trying to digest past pains or anticipate, right? And it can feel almost like a betrayal sometimes to not give ourselves over to this ruminative pattern of essentially worry. This is, um, is a researcher, uh, Borkovec, who, um, who, who actually studied worry, worrying as a phenomena specifically. And we can see in our own experience that we have a kind of redemptive hope in worrying yeah it it feels like it's getting something done yeah do you know that feeling of just like all right supposed to be with the breathing but just gonna kind of worry a little bit you know (laughs) just gonna like make sure things are cool got the evening planned you know this is Borkovec Uh, When I'm worrying, I'm mostly engaging in thought or talking to myself. This thinking, triggered by internal or external cues that signal danger, primarily concerns the future and involves the anxious anticipation of and mental attempts to avoid the many negative events I imagine might happen. 
the consequence of any perception of threat is the activation of basic fight or flight reactions, motivating attempts to escape or avoid. Quite naturally, under these circumstances, I feel compelled to prevent these bad things from happening or prepare myself for the worst. Worrying is a device that I believe can function to do this. Because I'm devoting large amounts of time to generating and attending to worrisome thoughts, much of my life is spent living in an illusion. There's a blamelessness of this process, yeah? There's a, we want to appreciate that wherever, however we're wired in relation to, to risk and uh, opening to uncertainty, to opening to the unknowability of the future, to the ungovernability of the human condition, uh, however we're wired in those respects, it, it's an important, it's like it's not our fault. And it makes a lot of sense that we would have this kind of redemptive hope in worrying. And I don't mean to dismiss it all out of hand, that there are ways in which simulating the future and fretting about possibilities and re-simulating the future and imagining different paths through the labyrinth of the human condition, that, that this is adaptive in some way. And we probably have invest worrying with too much hope. And so um, we, this is one of the reasons why these Buddhist communities, these are like ethical communities in the sense, not just that we agree not to harm each other for all the obvious reasons, but this is actually important in creating the sense of safety of settling into silence. Yeah? That we actually have to know that we have each other's backs, that we wish to, to do no harm. Yeah? And we come together as a community, as a Sangha, in the spirit of non-harming. And this actually has direct impacts on the capacity to settle. So, in the, the kind of relentlessness of our lives, like uh, this gathered mind, this samadhi is, it's so, um, it's very soothing in part because we feel more and more sheltered from change. At least that's one of the, one of the flavors of this unification, this, the Pali word samadhi is that we feel more and more sheltered from the relentlessness, the barrage of stimulation that is the human condition. And we long for a certain kind of protection and quiet. And maybe you know that feeling like, can things just slow down? Can we turn down the dial on our own nervous system? And one of the features of samadhi is that it actually helps, uh, it helps create, even if temporarily, a sense of, of shelter from the storm, from the intensity. And in the end, this practice is not about taking shelter from, from the storm, but we need to actually um, recharge and revitalize our heart so that we actually can make a deeper peace with the imperfection of the human condition. That takes this kind of movement of, of, uh, from solitude and the seclusion of the concentrated mind actually makes more room for us to open to the fullness of the human condition. 
Samadhi is, is really what distinguishes the Dharma from a kind of philosophical exercise. That there's a way in which until we gather the attention fully, we, um, the Dharma, this Buddhist philosophy, it can remain largely philosophical. Yeah. It can kind of feel somewhat satisfying and it feels like oh, it's a useful way of approaching life. But until we actually start to learn the capacities of our own mind, it can remain a kind of slightly abstract philosophical exercise. And one of the, the kind of consequences, the enduring consequences of the mind gathering, stabilizing, is there's this sense of like, oh, this path is not a joke. It's not a scam. And there's a part of us that's like, always got like at least one toe out, you know, that's like, maybe this is another scam. Yeah. Or maybe the Buddha wasn't talking about me, but everybody else, but somehow I'm the weird exception, you know, and I won't know the, the fruit of this path. And so the legacy of, of, you know, even, even just some taste of this is like, oh, this, I don't know where this path is going, but it's real. Yeah. Now, the, the path of finding our way into this, the, the unification of the mind entails um, negotiating our relationship to thoughts. And meditators are almost like embarrassed that they think. Do you know that feeling of like, catching yourself in the middle of some weird daydream, you know, when you're supposed to be meditating and kind of like, oh, you know, like kind of a shameful dog, kind of like, oh, oh Matthew, oh, again, you know, and just like internal cringe of just like, oh, oh, you know, and, uh, that like little small kind of burst of, of uh, guilt or something. Yeah. And then there's that sort of like shameful walk back to the breath. Right. It's like, um, this practice is, it's very humbling, you know, it's very humbling, but it's not supposed to be humiliating. Yeah. So it's, you can, forgive yourself. Like as so, you know, in some ways, as soon as you notice that it's like, okay, I'm here again. Like you can instantly like bless yourself, forgive yourself and come back. Yeah. And so we're, we're not turning thoughts into the enemy. Yeah. That we're, we're practicing making no experience an enemy, uh, including thoughts. The whole process itself is encased in a kind of unconsciousness, the drift from attention to like a, a, a kind of the decay of mindfulness and then the lapse fully into discursive thought is not a conscious process, yeah? And so we ought not blame ourselves for something that is, you know, clearly a, a kind of unconscious process. And um, we're, we're called to re-engineer our relationship to discursive thoughts. Uh, and, you know, the wandering mind, it, it has deep, deep grooves in the brain, yeah? I was alluding to this. So this is um, Malia Mason, uh, who did one of the earlier studies on a neuroimaging study of mind wandering. She writes, what does the mind do in the absence of external demands for thought? Is it essentially blank springing into action only when 
the task requires attention. Everyday experience challenges this account of mental life. In the absence of a task that requires deliberative processing, the mind generally tends to wander, flitting from one thought to the next with fluidity and ease. Given the ubiquitous nature of this phenomenon, it's been suggested that mind wandering constitutes a psychological baseline from which people depart when attention's required elsewhere and to which they return when tasks no longer require conscious supervision. It's a, a kind of like our baseline, that, that is the place to which we return is, is the monkey mind, yeah, as it's called. Um, with a lot of self-referential processing, yeah. Uh, another uh, another uh, brain brain researcher, she, um, Jennifer Beard, described, uh, you know, so, some of these brain regions and uh, characterized it in this way: the increased resting metabolism of of this brain, one of these brain regions, medial prefrontal cortex is theorized to support a default psychological mode of self-evaluation that provides chronic generalized updates on the self. <laughs> That's kind of nauseating, right? Like chronic generalized updates on the self, yeah? Like the page being refreshed, you know, like, how's Matthew? anyway but this is our life yeah so we want to uh to see that we we place uh so much hope in thinking yeah we place so much hope in thinking and in an important way we try to think our way to freedom, yeah? To think our way to liberation. It's like, it, it feels sometimes like the only tool that we really trust is the analytic problem-solving mind, yeah? And when we scan our experience, the, the breath, the body, sound, emotion, all these things like, and thoughts, thoughts are so prominent. We, we may not fully appreciate it, but it's like the thoughts stand out in technicolor, right? Compared to the sensations of breathing, right? That feel like this faint, distant, ethereal thing, but the thoughts are like right there and they feel so um, compelling. And it can even be like, when we feel like those little, the, a thought has not fully been born, but like little proto-thought, it's almost like begs us to think it, yeah? <laughs> it's just like to let go of that is too much. It's like, I just like, please, let me just get in there under the hood and think that thing, yeah? <laughs> so... This is, uh, this is Daniel Kahneman, uh, Nobel laureate. He says, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it, yeah, <laughs> right? It's like the discursive thinking, it has a certain kind of gravity to it, right? Like you, if we're not careful when we're sitting, you know, like every thought that careens into our minds feels a tiny bit brilliant, yeah? <laughs> when it comes, yeah? It's like, that's a good one. You know, <laughs> that dinner thought, you know, whatever, it's like, it feels urgent. There's a kind of urgency that happens when we're fully identified with our internal conversation. It like, it has a gravity and a weight and an urgency that's the nature of being identified with it. And so we want to see that 
when we um, when we start to to get quiet, um, the compulsion to continue narrating our autobiography, to tell stories about our experience, is an expression of a certain kind of fear and a wish to control. It can feel almost defenseless to know the world through something other than discursive thought. To know our experience, to know ourselves, not through discursive thought. And there's a way in which I, I, I felt this in a retreat, uh, retreat I was doing some practice out outside and late and it was a, it was two week retreat and, and, um, and there was, there was a certain kind of like, uh, kind of terror in not talking about experience to myself. Yeah, it was quiet, it was like quiet, beautiful, my mind was quiet, but there was this kind of sense of like, in order to actually stay safe requires this constant narration of my life, of the past, of the future, of like keeping tabs on the landscape of threat and opportunity. And part of our practice is learning to actually surf our inner life with, um, without the kind of buffer of our autobiography. The farther we get from our homeostatic kind of balance point, either positive into intense pleasure or negative, it's like the further we get, the more desperate the longing to talk to ourselves about experience. It's like a way of neutralizing experience, of making it safe. And so we are um, learning to, to begin to tolerate a sense of, um, of disorientation. That one, one of the kind of um, experiences we must learn to tolerate as we settle more and more deeply into silence and stillness, samadhi, is to tolerate disorientation and not to have all of the usual reference points laid out elaborately in that chronic generalized way. Me and you, past and future and present, what I like, what I dislike, where I begin and end, all of that become, must become vague. Yeah. And this, this um, entails a measure of, of equanimity, um, uh, which I, I'm not, not a, a scholar of, of Pali, you know, but the, the, the word in Pali, upeka, equanimity in English, it, it connotes something like gazing upon without interference. Gazing upon without interference, and uh, yeah, that is uh, so. Yeah, so central in beginning to actually settle into silence. It is. Um, Equanimity, it, it, it really retains the poignancy of our lives. Our, our lives, if anything, become more poignant 
but less melodramatic. Yeah. So it's not like this kind of detached, numbed out sort of state. It's actually, no, the heart is more free to move, but there is a sense of, um, yeah, of, of actually like taking refuge, taking safety in our willingness to let the winds of feeling blow and trust in some way that they may blow, they may buffet us, you know, uh, but they won't blow something over in, inside us. And so uh, this is a, a kind of convergence of samadhi and equanimity that, that we're learning to, like, for life to start to feel, you know, just good, good enough. The compulsive need to optimize each moment keeps us on the run from experience and fatigues the heart. You can't blame us for trying to do it, yeah? But the compulsive attempt to optimize each experience, to, to shift the rudder even just slightly to point in this direction versus that, conspires with the kind of monkey mind, yeah? And uh, we don't settle. So concentration comes in, in different, uh, different flavors and Sometimes it's said to be kind of narrow versus mindfulness, which is broad, but that's not actually a distinction the Buddha really honored. And what we can see is that concentration can come in narrow flavors, and but also at some level, mindfulness itself entails a measure of concentration. That when mindfulness, it's very easy for mindfulness to sort of glance off the objects of attention. When there's not enough settledness in the mind, it, we kind of glance off the objects of attention and mindfulness itself can feel like a little frenetic. It can feel like overstimulating. And the, the kind of element of settledness that comes into the mind to practice mindfulness is a way of having some sense of, of um, of rest amidst the, the changingness of our lives of experience. The Buddha, you know, sometimes describes samadhi in these like very um, enticing ways of like, you know, like, okay, that, this is the payoff. Like I've suffered enough and I would like some bliss, you know. Right, and and he it does acknowledge that uh, there there are like different flavors of very exquisite bliss that are some just pervading the whole body, and then others that are more and more subtle. And um, you know, and so we, there's a certain kind of honor and reverence we can have for that, but it's not to actually fetishize these these um, states of absorption in the meditative object. And the truth is that, that even, as, as maybe as wild as it might sound, even like ecstatic bliss drenching all of mind and body gets old. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, it's, I don't know if that makes me sound kind of depressed or what, but it's like, um, but it's, it's true. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, the only thing that, that doesn't fatigue the heart is peace. Yeah. And so we honor this, this unification of the mind without turning it into the ultimate purpose of practice. You know, sometimes people uh, people worry about getting 
attached to uh, to concentration. And meditators, you know, sometimes there's almost like a kind of borderline paranoia about clinging to anything good that happens in practice. You know, like I'm very familiar with people coming, you know, into a, an interview or something in, in a retreat or something, and they're like, well, I'm feeling really good, but I'm not going to get attached, you know, it's like, <laughs> and there's almost this way in which, like, the pleasure of it is like there's this certain kind of vigilance in the practice world against anything that feels good, and the, and the like, all right, I'm, the truth is we're, we're going to get attached, and it's okay. It's like better to get attached than to defensively kind of like hold pleasure at bay. Just let yourself feel it, and it is the kind of pleasure that actually um, it's born of letting go. And so to the extent we start to cling, it will dry up, and there will be a kind of message like, oh, okay, I have to let go again, yeah? Now, Joseph Goldstein tells this like brutal story of uh, he was in, in practicing in India with Goenka, and he just got into a phase of practice where he was just in real kind of like could sit for a long time. It was just ecstatic and the mind very gathered. And he described it was like having a body of light, yeah. And he ran out of money and needed to go make. He came back to the states to make money. And then he's going to make some money and get back to India and get back to his body of light. And he gets back and he's like, all right, let's go. Yeah. And he said what he found instead was like a body of twisted steel, yeah, is the way he described it. He said he, for two years he was trying to re-engineer the, the bliss that he had known. And he said it was the hardest period of of uh, practice for him. Uh, but I feel like Joseph suffered so that we don't have to. <laughs> yeah? Like, we take that lesson, yeah? And it's like, okay, I'm not gonna do that to myself, yeah? And so we get like really honest when we see we're clinging, yeah? And my experience is that actually people are more attached to the egoic badge of concentration than to the pleasure itself, yeah? Because it's like in our desperate attempts to benchmark our progress along this path, you know, with all of the humbling experiences that accompany a sincere spiritual practice, it's like, okay, at least I got... I got me the Samadhi badge, you know, like I'm going to wear that one. Yeah. And so the ego crystallizes around any goodness on this path. Yeah. And we want to watch that. But again, it's, it's okay. Yeah. So, um, I did, I did a, a bad job with time, but, uh, we'll finish in five minutes and, uh, can can go. Um, I'll, I'll hang around if there are, there are questions. So, um, so a few things. What what uh, factors supportive of this development of this this unification of the mind? Um, to live is enough. Suzuki Roshi said that to live is enough. We're trying to. Um, yeah, to feel like the, just this moment is actually enough, is a gift. You know, we talk about, about, uh, about you know, dana as generosity or money or something, but it's like, no, no. One of my teachers, Michelle McDonald, is like, no, that you were born is dana, that you're alive. Yeah, this is dana, your body, dana, gift, generosity. we become, uh, in a sense, we lose hope in the realm of hope and fear. There's a way in which for a long time, 
the only way we can imagine our life feeling complete is to rearrange the, the conditions within the realm of hope and fear. Yeah. And at some point we start to give up on that hope. We become less uh, trusting of that whole realm of hope and fear. My, one of my first teachers said, like, do you want to continue rearranging the furniture of your dream or wake up? We make peace with what is undigested in our past. There's a way in which we always talk about meditation as being about the present, but in some sense, the present is only composed of the past. And so naturally, what comes up for review, comes up for is, is what's unfinished. Like all the, the meal that was too big for us to, to complete. Yeah. And life often feels like a meal that's too big to complete. There's something left over. There's something unfinished. Yeah. And it comes up in our practice and we do our best to bless it with wisdom and love. And over time, this begins to take some of the barbs out of our past, the harm done to us, the harm done by us. And the sense that we could be ambushed by our own memory, our own emotional material, that starts to fade. And so we feel more and more settled, just moving into the vagueness, the darkness of Samadhi. And we uh, are practicing uh, letting go of control. It feels like we have to engineer this, you know, like sometimes I'll sit and be like, all right, Brent Silver. It's like a little Dharma pep talk, like, Pull it together, Brent Silver. You know, like, here we go. We're going to get concentrated. You know? And it, it sort of creates this artificial sense of this pressure on the willfulness. Yeah? Zajan Brahm. Um, Stillness means a lack of movement. Since will causes the mind to move, to experience stillness, one must remove all will, all doing, all control. If you grasp a leaf on a tree and try your hardest to hold it still, no matter how hard you try, you'll never succeed. There will always be some vibration caused by the slight tremors in your muscles. However, if you don't touch the leaf and just protect it from the breeze, the leaf comes to a natural state of stillness. So in the development of samadhi, we are practicing letting go. We are practicing equanimity. We are uh, practicing forgiveness for ourselves, for others. We are practicing uh, uh, making peace with the, um, the imperfection of the human condition, yeah? And so it, it holds so much, yeah? So I uh, offer these these uh, reflections for whatever they they may be worth, and the uh, the invitation is to to pick up whatever feels relevant and inspect it in in the field of your own experience, and to leave uh, all the rest behind. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.
and uh, and I'll, I'll uh, I'm I'm happy to to hang around for a bit if people have have questions. I'm very happy to to connect with you.